Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Welcome to Creating a Family. Talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're going to be asking the question, is it possible to be happy in the midst of infertility? This is an important topic. (laughs) For most people who have dealt with infertility, they at times question whether that is a possibility. I think you're going to enjoy today's show. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We remind you that of some of our many resources, we also have multimedia guides. And one in particular that I think you will find helpful is How to Choose an Infertility Clinic. Uh, It is a great uh, resource. It has a lot, a lot of information. We have lists of questions, things to look for, information on how to interpret uh, the, the uh, success statistics, and quite frankly, that's not as easy as it might seem. Uh, and so I really think that you will enjoy this multimedia guide. To get it, you can go to our website, creatingafamily.org, hover over the word resources, and click on eGuides, and you'll get right there. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. We thank them for their continued support for making this show happen. In addition, we have other great gold sponsors who believe in our mission of bringing you unbiased education and support. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to adoption and assisted reproductive law, including providing a gestational surrogacy matching program, as well as legal services to cover all forms of assisted reproductive technology. We also have Fairfax Cryobank. They have been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years and are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. And we also have IntegraMed Fertility. They are one of the, or in fact, they are the largest network of fertility practices in the country. They combine the latest innovations in reproductive science with compassionate and customized treatment plans and are thus able to provide the very best possible care. In addition to some of our wonderful gold sponsors, we have other sponsors who allow us to bring you this show. So we ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider one that is listed on our Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by a number of of criteria that we think are important when choosing. And by using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about the emotions of uh, the infertility struggle. Is it possible to be happy while you're in the midst of of going through treatment or even before or after treatment? 
Our guest today is Dr. Allie Domark. She has been a guest on this show a number of times. Quite frankly, her advice is always spot on. I so appreciate her wisdom, her humor, and just her approach, her general approach. She is an international leader in the field of mind-body medicine and women's health. She is also the founder of the Domar Center for Mind-Body Health, and she's the author of numerous books, including the, the, the Sentinel book, Conquering Infertility, and she is also the author of a book that, that uh, is more directly relevant to today's topic, and that is, and I love this book, I should add, Being Happy Without Being Perfect. This is a show that we aired a number of years ago, and uh, the information, I listened to it again, and the information is as spot on now as it was the, the, the years ago when we first did this. I think you're going to really get something out of this show, and I'm really happy that we're able to bring it to you again to make sure it didn't get buried in our archives. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Dr. Ali Domar, to Creating a Family. Thank you so much, Don. Thanks for having me. I love your books, and I've read most of them. I must say I have not read the one that's coming out in paperback, but that will be uh, come March. That will be changed. <laughs> uh, but I uh, and I just finished your latest book, which is Being Happy Without Being Perfect. It is a great book. Now, infertility, or for that matter, being in the waiting stages of adoption or uh, any of these things, are a huge stressor. In fact, I've read that some par um, and from the stress categories of, of a cancer diagnosis. You work with infertility patients. Uh, is this what you see as well? Actually, you know, the study you just mentioned was mine. We actually published a study, I don't know, about 10 years ago, showing that women with infertility had equivalent levels of anxiety and depression to women who had cancer, AIDS, or heart disease. So, yeah, it's a it's a huge hit. There have actually been two studies since then comparing infertility patients to cancer patients, and one of the studies actually showed that infertility patients express more distress. You know, and so when you're in the midst of this field, which you and I both are, that so doesn't surprise me, although it, it that is actually a little surprising when you say it's, it's more stress, but uh, it is such, you feel so... You feel so helpless so often, Absolutely. which I think you know. You feel just out of adds. control. You feel out of control. Yeah, and you are out of control mm-hmm. in the sense mm-hmm. that you know what the, the media has been reporting studies that talk about the role of stress in causing infertility. Mm-hmm. And you know, I struggle with this issue because we all know that just relaxing it doesn't magically make a baby. If it did, everybody would right. be pregnant the first month. They ditched the birth control and popped open the cork. You know, so it just doesn't work that way. But what's your take on this debate of the role of stress in causing infertility? You know, I don't think we can. I don't think anyone is saying that stress causes infertility per se. I, I think that you can get caught in a catch twenty two, where you know what came first, the stress or the infertility. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, there is some evidence that depression, not stress, but dep- you know, clinical depression, can actually significantly um, contribute to infertility, which actually makes sense. If, if any of you have ever been clinically depressed, you can't take care of yourself. And it's almost like your body knows, you know, if you can't take care of yourself, you sure can't take care of a baby. Um, and we also know that, you know, there are lots of people out there who are, are perfectly relaxed human beings, but they might have blocked tubes or they might have a partner who doesn't um, produce normal sperm. So the relationship is, is very fuzzy. Um, but I think what we can say to the extent that stress can contribute to infertility, and we do know that because there have been probably 20 studies that have looked at IVF patients, for example, and they found the more stressed the woman is before and during her IVF cycle, the less likely she is to get pregnant. Okay, that makes sense. Let me read this uh, question we received from Elizabeth. We are struggling with infertility. 
I have always thought of myself as a fairly happy person, but it seems ludicrous to expect to be happy when you're fighting this awful disease. I don't know if I'm depressed, but I'm certainly not happy. How do you know if you should be taking an antidepressant when your unhappiness is caused by such a specific thing? Her second question is, is it realistic to expect happiness at a time like this? Uh Two really, really good questions. I mean, in, in terms of the, you know, do I expect someone to go dancing down the streets while they're going through infertility? Absolutely not. I mean, infertility is a is a massive emotional hit for some people. Although if you look at the data that are collected on, on women from all over the world who have infertility, not all of them are emotionally devastated by it. There are, there are a lot of things which um, can mediate how they handle their infertility. Like one is their relationship with their partner and how the two of them are together coping with their infertility. Another is, you know, how solid is their family? You know, I, I've had patients come in and say, I just had a patient yesterday say that, that her entire family is absolutely horrified that she's doing donor egg and her sister has basically stopped speaking to her. Oh, my God. <laughs> so, you know, so you know, your family makes it. And also it's, it's sort of how, how resilient are you? I think the patient's... I personally worry about the most when I, you know, the patients of mine are the ones who've never, ever had to deal with any kind of life challenge before. And so, mm-hmm. you know, they don't really know how to handle a crisis. And infertility, you know, for sure constitutes a crisis. Do you think, so, I, I sometimes see those people who have, who are, who, who feel like there are more options that they don't feel like, if they have a broader definition of family, or that they're, if they feel like if this doesn't work, there's still something I can live. I can. There's still another way. Either I can be childless and live with that, or I can adopt and live with that. That they seem to be able to moderate the stress of infertility, but unfortunately, not everybody is there, or they're not there at the beginning. I mean, do you right. see that as well? I mean, you know, no one gets their period for the first after the first month of trying to. Oh, good, now I can adopt, or oh, good, now I can do donor egg. I mean, mm-hmm. You know, most doesn't people, work that way usually. No, most people, given the choice, would prefer to have get pregnant with their genetic child. That said, some of the happiest patients on mm-hmm. earth that I've ever seen are the ones who've adopted or done a donor egg, because you know, as painful a process as it is to get to the point where you want to do it, once you get to that point, it's, it's magical. But I want to get back to I think it's Elizabeth's question in terms of medication, because I think we have this this thinking in this country that if we're not you know, satisfied or happy most of the time, we should contemplate going on antidepressants. And, and the fact mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I certainly refer a lot of patients to, uh, to local psychiatrists to be evaluated whether or not antidepressants are, you know, appropriate for them. And I actually did it twice last week. But I think that's very much the exception. I actually think that most people going through infertility have the resources and the resilience to not need to go on antidepressants. And, and I think we should, you know, think seriously about I don't ever like seeing a young, healthy woman going on antidepressants because of infertility. I mean, if she had a clinical depression before infertility and has always needed antidepressants to have a normal quality of life, that's a whole different kettle of fish. But if she's really struggling with her infertility, I would sure as heck like to see her try other things like a mind-body group or a support group or even individual or couples counseling before trying medication. It's always been a confusing thing to me because there's certain incidences in life you you know lose a parent or god forbid a spouse or a child that are are just awful and and you sh- the, the healthy reaction is it, it seems like to that event is depression uh-huh. so it, where does an antidepressant fit in there because are you not medicating away what perhaps is a normal healthy response 
I totally agree with you. I mean, it's funny because I remember after my mom died six years ago, several people said, oh, you should go on an antidepressant. I'm like, why? You know, I should be sad. I just lost my best friend, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and over the course of months and, you know, a year or two, I began to feel better. And I, I don't think it, that, that's not what antidepressants are meant for. They are meant to treat people who truly have uh, organic, an, an issue with the, you know, the tr- neurotransmitters in their brain, that they are, they are clinically depressed, that they cannot live a normal life unless they take medication. And it, it is a, it's a yeah it's a physical thing where their body is not producing something that other right. people's bodies does produce right and you know and and what the research shows is is sort of the best case scenario is if somebody is experiencing a clinical depression you put them on antidepressants so they'll feel better relatively quickly and then you teach them or you have them do what's called cognitive behavioral therapy which is basically a way of challenging recurrent automatic negative thought patterns and you and you keep them on medication until they've really figured out this whole cognitive behavioral piece. And then you taper them off the medication, but continue to support them practicing CBT. And people tend to do really well, far better than with either intervention alone. And, you know, and that makes that's perfectly what I good sense for me. Patients. Is, you know, I see patients all the time who, who come in here with depression scores that are, you know, to be honest, rather frightening. And I'll say, and I make a deal with them. I'm starting a mind-body group on Monday. And so I'll tell them, I'll make a deal with you. You know, I won't, you know, make you go get antidepressants. Until you've been in the mind body group for a month, and if you're still feeling like this in a month, then you have to agree that you will go see a psychiatrist. But let, let's see if you can do this on your own. And you know, a couple times a year, people will say, "You know what? I want to go on meds now." But for the most part, they do the mind body group, and within a month, they're okay. When you say a mind body group, what do you mean? The mind body program is is a program I started 23 years ago when I was four. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I was six. <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, it's really scary when I have to admit that my program started in 1987. Um, <laughs> like half of our listeners weren't alive. Uh, um, it's, it's, yeah, I understand. I'm there with you. Yeah, it's it's a group program for women going through infertility. It folk, It's a really a cognitive behavioral model where women learn a lot of different relaxation techniques, a lot of stress management skills. It's a, you know, a ton of group support. They learn about, you know, which lifestyle behaviors might impact their fertility. They learn which complementary alternative medicine um, approaches are safe and which are not. Um, but I, I think that, the, you know, if you ask me to pull out the three active ingredients, I'd say it's probably a combination of the stress management strategies, the relaxation techniques, and the group support. And the group support because, you know, like a woman can literally walk into a group and say, I just found out my sister's pregnant. And everyone in the group would go, mm-hmm. oh, my God, we're so sorry. Exactly. Where out in the real world, that's not mm-hmm. all what she'd hear. And so it reduces the isolation. It makes her feel like, you know, hating every pregnant woman is actually a normal and healthy response to infertility. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to act on it, but you can sure as heck feel it. And you can uh, say it to other women going through it. Right. Yeah, I think that actually that's, in a way, I think that that's been an interesting uh, major benefit from the internet is that people can find and connect with others who are going through the same thing and in a usually a fairly safe place we have certainly found that with our creating a family facebook support group and quite frankly twitter as well i mean because it it allows you a degree of anonymity if you want Mm -hmm. it and it's uh i wonder how people coped when they didn't have that because you know what are the odds especially if you don't live in a large city what are the odds of finding a, a support group. Um, you know, I tell you that I'm still waiting to hear any data 
to shut off the Internet is really making a difference because I think that, you know, for every responsible website like yours, which, you know, doesn't allow people to, to mouth off or doesn't allow people to, you know, pass on, you know, erroneous information, yeah. you know, I think there are a lot of websites out there where, where, A, people get very nasty and competitive and jealous very quickly, and, B, there's an enormous amount of wrong information. And so, you know, people write in about, you know, their FSH levels, and then 20 people write in and said, oh, I took this herb and my FSH is now normal. So I think people have to be really careful on the Internet about which websites they go to. And there's no question that forums um, have a personality. Mm-hmm. And you know, I'm, I've never been quite sure is the f- personality associated with the moderator or with the participants, and it's probably some combination. But you're very right, and some are uh, I call them kind groups, and some are really you know not so kind. Not so kind. Yeah, I mean I have to say that every time there's anything like a the New York Times article a couple weeks ago about the twelve lanes, and then the right. surrogacy article maybe six months ago, mm-hmm. when you go look at the comments posted online, I mean. I wouldn't say anything like that to my worst enemy, and people are posting this stuff. And, you know, I guess one good thing about the Internet is that you can truly say what you want, but that's also a bad thing about the mm-hmm. Internet. There, you, you shouldn't be able to truly say what you want, not to, to somebody else. I mean, you could think yeah. what you want, but Absolutely. you know what? There are common decency. That's exactly what my blog this week is on, is the, you know, I, what, for whatever reason, I am just drawn to, to read those, the comments because I, I know I'm going to be blown away. Yeah. And I just, I know that. But I still so, go, and I think I'm expecting that somehow I'm going to see something different. I mean, I did the same with the twibbling. I mean, I just I read the article, and then I go, okay, no, don't don't keep scrolling down. Don't, don't, right, don't. Right. Stop yourself. Stop yourself. As I scroll down, I go, uh-huh. oh, now, darn, listen to this. Anyway, but I have a, uh, you know, I can I can vent through my blog. So let me ask you a question. What were people saying about Nicole Kidman's surrogacy pregnancy, maybe? Well, I mean, it's some of the... You know, some of the same stupidity that that you see all the time. Here, I'll read you some. I'm, this is off of my um, it's creatingafamily.org uh, slash blog. It's the blog's title is Fame Doesn't Protect You from Ignorance. Just ask Nicole Kidman and Keith Urban. Um, it, one says, just pay someone to pump a baby out for you. I guess they feel like I'm not, I, they feel like I'm not going to walk around like this for nine months. We'll pay somebody else to do it. Lifestyles of the rich and stupid. Uh, one guy said, I could picture a person, not a guy necessarily, I could picture a future in which there will be a completely different class of surrogate children versus children born directly to their parents. And then a whole host that say, mm. uh, well, they were, this is one that, they just waited too long and became infertile. They um, they shouldn't have waited that long. Blah blah blah. You know, but of course, just pointing to celebrities without you know acknowledging the fact that, mm-hmm. that this is across the board. Um, their celebrities don't want to ruin their figures. That's why they're doing this, as if most people would uh, avoid pregnancy because they don't want to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, anyway, just um, yeah. See, that, but this is what I worry about is that. In that, I remember I ran I ran a mind and body degree battle about five years ago, and somebody who was close to forty was sort of going. Over, she was pregnant, and she was going over the pros and cons of having an amnio. And someone said, "Oh, you know, I read on a blog or I read on a website that you know somebody had an amnio, and it's the baby had Downs, and they terminated the pregnancy, and the baby didn't have Downs, and everyone in the group was like, oh, my God, don't have an amnio.'" And I'm like, "Okay, but that's sort of the historical thinking that can start." You know, do we really know the details? And did she really have an amnio, or was it did she just have you know the the, the quad screening? So I, I worry a lot about the information out there. Years ago, I think it was the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation um, 
did a study, and they found that more than 50% of the information, the medical information on the Internet, is actually erroneous. It's wrong. So I, I think people have to be yeah. careful. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny. We run into that a bit here on the show because there, there are certain topics where there is diversity in the field. Mm-hmm. And so do you touch those topics at all? Do you have a guest come on that is espousing something that is, uh, is not universally agreed to and, and where your standards are and how or do you just avoid those topics altogether. And we debate that a great deal here. Uh, not all, there aren't that many controversial topics. Um, and we try to, you know, if they are out, I mean, off the board, we just don't deal with them. But, well, don't, uh, you know, I, I don't think I, 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 you know, I've certainly been the object of a ton of controversy since I published my first paper. In fact, mm-hmm. I published my first paper on the Mind Body Program in 1990, and got eviscerated by letters to the editor that were published in the journal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, see, that's what I mean. And, and uh, we ran a, a very early on. The show's been going on three and a half years, and very early on, we did a show on alternative treatments, and we mm-hmm. there were people who objected to that, mm-hmm. but we were careful. In, by selecting a guest that we felt like was presenting accurate information, all, not everybody would agree with it, and we try to point mm-hmm. that out. That you know that that there are some people. Oh, it's funny now, the contents of that show are quite tame by comparison. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, more people are now accepting that yeah, acupuncture could have an influence. Although we're always careful to point out that a lot of the studies are not necessarily coming back showing that. But right, exactly. Anyway, it's. Uh, it is when you are uh, an education and, and support, but an education is first for us. It, it is a bit of a challenge of trying to figure out. On the other hand, getting information, we're try, you know, the role is to get as much as you can. Uh, but information can you answer Elizabeth's second question? Because I want to make sure that her, yeah. her question gets. Her second question was, how can I be happy with, when going through infertility? Is, that what is it realistic was? to expect happiness? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't think that you're perhaps, I mean, I, most infertility patients are not happy as they go through infertility. And I wouldn't expect, I mean, if someone walked in and said they were happy as they go through infertility, I'd want to test them for mania. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think, you know, you can be a happy person as you go through all this. No, I, I mean, I think some people probably are, are relatively resilient and stay the same. So, no, I don't think you're going to be happy as you go through infertility, but I think it's still possible to have moments or days of happiness and have, you know, ice cream is still going to taste good and, you know, your husband or partner is still going to be attractive to you and Paris is still going to be gorgeous and the springtime when the flowers come up are still going to be amazing. And, you know, I teach my patients what's called mindfulness, which which really means to be in the moment. And, you know, I teach it to them by having them peel and eat a Hershey's Kiss. And it sounds insane, but the fact is, is you know, the chocolate tastes pretty darn good. And yeah. so, you know, is your baseline going to be different during infertility than it was before infertility or after infertility? It probably will be. But does it? it but you're still going to have, you know, highs and lows. There's still going to be things that make you feel good. You're, you might have something happen at work that makes you feel good. There might be, you know, you might do something to your home that makes you feel good. So I would I really, worry about someone who just says they're sad all the time. And that's the and they can't of, find moments of happiness is what you're saying. Those are the people that I want to talk to, you know, that they really should be seeing somebody, they, a therapist who really is trained in working with infertility patients. Oh, yeah, that's a recurring theme here is finding somebody who truly understands um, infertility because it is right. it, it's so much. It's not that another person can't necessarily help you, but it. You will have to do so. You, the advice you're going to get be, to be, is going to be more on target, and you will do a whole lot less educating of the therapist, which, you know, quite frankly, is stressful in and of itself. 
I read something one time that people are, and I don't know whether they are just born this way or for whatever reason that that people are have a baseline of happiness, mm-hmm. and that that a lot, and that the the ups and downs of life don't fundamentally change exactly. what that baseline is. That's what I was actually about to say. Is that remember I said you know your probably you know infertility may bring down your overall level, but the fact is is that human beings are unbelievably resilient. And if you look at people who literally won the lottery and you look at people who had to go on dialysis and you look at people who have been through medical crises, all of them pretty much go back to their baseline, whether something really good happened to you or something really bad happened to you. We really mm-hmm. do. We recover from the high or the low, and we're going to be okay. I mean, if you look at the long-term data on women who go through infertility, and the study was published, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago by Judith Danielock out of Canada, and she looked at women in their 60s and 70s, all of whom had gone through infertility. A third had gotten pregnant, a third had adopted, and a third never had children. And when they were in their 60s and 70s, they were all the same. Wow. So what it means is as awful as infertility might feel right now, whatever decisions you make are not going to permanently impact the quality of your life. That's a really powerful thought. Yeah. Well, that's what the data shows, you know, is that yeah. we really, people, I think what I mean, people listening have to understand is that you have to trust your your health, your your mental health or your resilience or whatever more than perhaps you do. I mean, yeah, it's really hard to go through this. There's no question. But when this is over, you're going to be okay, no matter no matter how it turns out. And that there are options beyond this point. Yeah. Uh, be they uh, a child-free life, be they donor egg, be they surrogacy, adoption, whatever. There are options. The problem is, of course, uh, these options, many of them, um, not all, but many cost money. So that's yep. it's, uh, un- unfortunately a reality. Um, what role does perfectionism play in happiness? In general? I, I think, yes. you know, it's interesting because if you look at, the, at my career, you know, I came out of grad school all excited about mind-body programs and how, you know, I'd see people with lupus and MS and, you know, infertility and all sorts of, you know, awful conditions learn mind-body skills and feel better. And I thought, oh, that's really cool. So I wrote a book called Healing Mind, Healthy Woman, and it was all it was basically was teaching women how to use mind-body skills. And so I went on in my career, and I thought, you know, women aren't really doing this. I mean, they're highly motivated and not doing it. So I thought, okay, the reason is is that women just don't feel comfortable taking care of themselves. And so I wrote a a book called Self-Nurture, where I thought that, you know, what we really need to do is to teach women how to care for themselves. And then I started hearing back from women, and they said, you know, it's not so much that we don't have to take care of ourselves. It's like it's really hard to read a book. If you need to vacuum, I mean, if the, you know, if the carpet looks bad, or if there's, you know, if you need to dust, and so then I began thinking about perfectionism, and I do think for a lot of women, perfectionism very much gets in the way of happiness. You know, you do in the book, um, "Be Happy Without Being Perfect." There is a perfectionist quiz. Now, I liked it because it showed that I wasn't much of a perfectionist, which I already knew, of course. <laughs> so, of course, I liked it because it said, "Good, you're not a perfectionist." But, uh, you know, I thought it was an interesting thing to think about because it was the expectation i think the point that it, that it was it's your expectations of what need what should be the shoulds mm-hmm. of the world that influence your everyday enjoyment of life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and, and for the most part it's the pressure you put on yourself and it's the perception 
let other people judge you as harshly as you judge yourself. That's, and, that's and the, where we get into trouble. And we don't often judge people as harshly as we judge ourselves. Right. I mean, I guess there are some people who do, but for the most part, I think people uh, are much harder on themselves. Oh, my God. I mean, if you don't believe me, go look. Go, You know, tomorrow morning if you take a shower, stand naked in front of the mirror and tell me if your first thought is, ah, sheer perfection. Because <laughs> it's not. I mean, we are we are so critical. Oh, wait a minute. Now, you haven't seen me. Maybe, maybe that is what you would say. Come well, on now. <laughs> I'm guessing you're female, so... <laughs> Oh, trust me, you can guess further than that. You can guess yeah. accurately that perfection is not what you would think. I've had patients who are celebrities. I've had patients who are, you know, TV anchors. I've had patients who are models, professional dancers, you name it. And they come in here and they are so, you know, physically perfect, I just want to stare at them. And yet mm-hmm. they have, when they look in the mirror, they have the same issues that you or I do. You know? So yeah, hard to imagine. Yeah, but perfectionism really gets in our way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you say that perfectionism is perfectionism is a uniquely American, uh, I don't know, characteristic or whatever. But and that surprised me. Is it true that Americans are more perfectionistic than other people in other countries? That's what a lot of the data shows. Yeah, that's interesting to me. Yeah, but you know, if you think about it, I mean, think who emigrates to America. You know, we are a land of immigrants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, because people who, you know, you know that all that tension that's, that's come out now with the Tiger Mother book and how, yeah. and, yeah. you know, one person said, you know, maybe maybe it's not that Asians are, are um, innately better parents. It's that the people who emigrated here, you know, before and during the revolution were highly educated and highly achieving people. And I think that in general, if you look at America, the people who emigrated here, were the ones who would basically risk everything for a better life. And so by definition, that's people who push themselves really hard. And so that's who we are. We're people who push ourselves very hard. Well, this gets to the old, you know, nature versus nurture. Are perfectionists born or made? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Okie dokie then. Moving right on. (laughs) You know, if you look at the data... There does seem to be a genetic component, but it's hard to tease out because a lot of kids of perfectionistic mothers or parents, you know, that's all they see. You know, I, I have my daughter, both of my kids have friends whose mothers, they're scary. Like you you, you walk into their homes and, and they are perfect. And, you know, they won't let kids come into their home because their homes are so perfect. So, it, it, you know, it can really, you know, decrease the quality of your life. Yeah, from a kid. We did a show, um, it's actually been a year ago now, and it's truly one of my favorite shows that we've done. It was Nature versus Nurture, and we uh, the, the guests were two of the leading, they led, were the two leaders of two of the leading uh, twin studies in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely, I mean, it's a subject that I find infinitely fascinating, but it was um it was so interesting, so much, and, and it's, it's so not clear, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you're talking about humans. We are so much more complex than that, particularly mm-hmm. when we're talking about personality traits and temperament traits. It's just not, it's just not as easy as to be able to say your answer was perfect. Yes, both. <laughs> well, it's interesting because now, if you look at the field of egg donation, you know it's been observed worldwide that children born, children who are who are conceived by egg donation, are far more like their mothers than you would expect them to be. And, in fact, there, Jackie Boyven um, out of Wales did a big study um, looking at 
the similarities. And I actually haven't seen the results yet. I don't think she's finished analyzing the data. I don't think she's published it yet, has she? I don't think she has, but there's this yeah. whole new field called epigenetics. Right. Which looks at the influence of the uterine environment on the genetic makeup of the baby. Mm-hmm. And it looks like there there can, you know, it's not like if you have, you know, you, you can't necessarily change eye color, but it looks like the uterine environment is able to switch genes on and off. Mm-hmm. Um, because almost all of my egg donor patients have come back and said, I cannot believe how much this child is like me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you know I think knows? that I think we find that in adoption as well. Yep. And I don't have studies necessarily show it, but I do have anecdotal, which I realize is not, you know, can, it's, take it for what it's worth. But I think it's, in some ways it's because we are looking for the similarities. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I believe to a certain extent this is a little off subject, but that as parents, you know, there's that the goodness of fit theory mm-hmm. of parenting. Um, and um blanking on the name of the guy, I just interviewed him, um, who does the, the resilient child, Brooks, um, out of Harvard as well. Anyway, a psychologist, and I'm blanking on his name. And I Not should, El yeah, Powell. I'll try to remember who it is. I just remember. I just interviewed him in December. Oh well. The um, and we were talking about the that that the, the whole goodness of fit idea, and I think mm-hmm. that to me it's a very empowering idea, which says that because as the adult in this relationship, we can alter that goodness of fit. I mean, we can't alter our basic self, but we can look for ways that we are more like our children. And I think that children mm-hmm. uh, 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 who have been conceived through egg donation and children that have been adopted often will have parents uh, that are going to be looking for similarities mm-hmm. uh, and looking for ways that they do fit. So I wonder if that influences, which to me it's a very powerful and a good thing. Which It's a very uh, good thing. No, it's interesting because yeah. I, I did a webinar yesterday and someone wrote in and said her husband had a genetic condition and so she wants to move ahead with sperm donation, and he is adamantly against it, saying, you know, he won't be the, the real father. And I, I uh, responded that, in fact, I remember, this is like 15 years ago, I was at the International Academy of Sex Research meeting giving a presentation, and they presented some data on the children of sperm, of the children of, I mean, how the children were doing in terms of their relationship with their father. These are children who are conceived by a sperm donation. And they compared them to children who were being brought up by their genetic father. And what they found was that children who were conceived by a sperm donation were actually felt closer to their fathers, and it was a better father-child relationship. And people surmise it's because, you know, the dad perhaps didn't push the child to be to excel at what he had excelled in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so maybe the kids felt, you know what I'm saying? You know, exactly. You know, if dad was a football star and then he, you know, had a child by a sperm donation, maybe, and the kid was an amazing violinist, maybe the father wouldn't take it so personally that the mm-hmm. kid didn't excel at football. Would allow the child to be who they he know, or yes. she really is as opposed exactly. to your idea of a mini-me. Exactly. I always worry when people are expecting their children uh, to be like them and and therefore hesitant to use egg donor uh, uh, egg donor or hesitant to adopt there's plenty of good reasons not to want to use an egg donor and not want to mm-hmm. adopt but mm-hmm. i worry if people are expecting a child that is their genetic child to be like them well that's a joke right. <laughs> you know right. it just is well it's uh, interesting because i have patients all the time you know as they're going through treatment and they're not getting pregnant and the question of egg donation or adoption starts to come up you know they start to go, yeah, but I want my child to be just like me. I want my child to be perfect. I want my, and I'm thinking, and I say to them frequently, you know, we have a lot of friends who are well-educated, 
people and a lot of our friends' kids have issues. I mean, yeah. you know, just because it's your genetic material doesn't mean your child's going to be perfect. And, and that's no. hard to accept. I have a family mixed of adoption and, and by birth. And we 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 face issues. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. not necessarily that we could have looked, you know, learning disabilities and things like that. That we can't go back and say, gosh, there was a genetic connect, you know, because it wasn't one as far as we know. But who knows? I mean, mm-hmm. it, and 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 life goes on, and you find that you know there are strengths there that you you don't you know that you wouldn't have known if about, and it's it's you know, it's a mixed blessing. We've been talking about perfectionism. How does it rear its head? With infertility, and I guess partly what I'm I'm getting at is the drive of if I do everything right, I will get pregnant. Um, I mean, not everybody feels that way, but some do. And how does that? How does it get involved there? Because the truth is, there are certain things you should be doing right. You know, there, there are a certain amount of research that you right. should be doing. You know. Well, you know, I, I think the issue is is that people going through infertility. I think maybe more than any other medical condition, really do have to almost be their own advocate. Because in in most situations, they have to, you know, keep track of things. I'm not sure why that is, but it seems to be pretty universal. Because I've led workshops all over the world, and patients all over the world report the same thing. And so I think you do feel like you have to be very detail-oriented for sure. But but I think one of the things we haven't touched on, and I think where perfectionism, you know, enters into the equation, is just how emotionally isolating infertility is. And how in, I've had so many patients that said they learned the hard way growing up, but the harder they worked at something, the more likely they were to get it. And if you study really yeah. hard, you know, yeah. you'll get good grades. And if you practice really hard, you'll do well on the piano. And if you work really hard, you'll make the soccer team. And yet you go through infertility and you can mm-hmm. be the perfect patient and get to mm-hmm. every appointment on time. And, you know, I talked to a patient yesterday. He says, I'm, I'm so sick of feeling guilty if I have a cup of coffee. She's like, mm-hmm. all my health habits I've changed, and she's like, I'm the perfect patient, and it's still not helping. Right. And that's really frustrating. Yeah. Because I think the truth is, throughout a lot of things in life, the harder you work at it, you will succeed. Mm-hmm. Not everything, but and certainly mm-hmm. not infertility, but for a lot of the things we have been geared towards, you put in your time, you do your research, you know, you, you make a plan, you follow through, and those are the people who succeed. Mm-hmm. And and in and, and truth, I do think that it helps to make a plan in infertility. It does help to get educated. It does help to, to think through what your options are. And all that helps, but it's not going to guarantee anything, and it can be just so darn frustrating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and depressing. And, you know, I think the emotional isolation, I mean, when I give talks, I always say that infertility is unlike any other medical condition because it affects every aspect of your life, you know, your your partnership, your sexual life together, your relationship with your family, your relationship with your friends, your job, your financial security, and your relationship with God. But on top of all that, people have this idea that they can, you know, criticize you or give you, you know, unsolicited advice. Give you advice. That you, oh, that yeah. you would never, I mean, people tell infertility patients all the time, just relax and you get pregnant. Mm-hmm. Now, would you ever say to somebody, just relax and your cancer will go away? That would be considered to be the most insensitive thing ever. Mm-hmm. The infertility patients hear this on a daily basis. That's right. And it's very frustrating for people. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Or you're listening to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're talking about how to be happy even while infertile. Our guest is Dr. Ali Domar. She's an international leader in the field of mind-body medicine and women's health. 
She is the founder of the Domar Center for Mind-Body Health. She is the director of the Mind-Body Services at Boston IVF and the author of numerous books, including Conquering Infertility being ha- and Being Happy Without Being Perfect. Here's a question from Suzette. I don't know if this is really on topic for today's show, but I'll ask it anyway. First, first, I love all of Ali Domar's books, and I am a Creating a Family addict. Thank you both so much. We are taking a break from treatment after two failed cycles and four years of trying. I just don't seem to have the energy to jump back into treatment. We are both 38, and my husband wants us to do another cycle soon because of our age. I just want to crawl under the covers and forget about the whole baby-making thing for a couple of years. I'm not depressed, but I'm not, but I am discouraged and worn out. I'm really not sure what the question is, really, but I'd love to hear you both talk about it. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I, I straddle both worlds because, you know, I'm the director of my body services here at Boston IVF, and, and so I'm very attuned to the emotional needs of my patients. On the other hand, I also know the impact that age has on fertility. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm a huge believer and listening to your gut feeling. And, you know, the fact is, if if every cell in your body is screaming, I don't want to do another cycle, then you know what? You really shouldn't be doing another cycle right now. That said, you know, is time urgency an issue because you're 38? Yes. I mean, you you can't take two years to think about cycling again. But you know what? You can take a few months. I'd rather see someone take a few months off and then cycle when they feel ready than force themselves to cycle now. Um, In in this situation, in any situation, if you have two partners where one of them wants to move ahead with treatment and the other one doesn't, again, that's a time when you need to sit down with a therapist who's really well-versed in this. I mean, it's much more uncomfortable for me when it's the husband who wants them to cycle, not the wife, because it's really her body that takes 99% of the brunt of the cycle. Mm -hmm what you tend to see more often is the wife wants to cycle again and the husband just doesn't have the energy and doesn't want to see her put herself through that. Mm-hmm. And in a situation like this where it's the husband who's pushing her to do a cycle, you know, if she feels like she can take a couple months off and, and really take good care of herself in every way possible and then see if in a couple months she wants to cycle again, they may not need to see someone. But otherwise, I think they, they need to sit down with, with someone and say, you know, how do we make sure both of our needs are getting met here? Yeah, and during that time when they're taking off to try to do something that's non-fertility related, something right. that will bring them joy, something that they would look forward to, just something right. that would you know, break some of the, the drudgery that, that unfortunately infertility treatment can be. So I had a patient, you're going to like this, a couple of years ago who had done what most infertility patients did. She stopped drinking alcohol. She stopped caffeine. She stopped exercise. She, you know, made sure her weight was in the right range. And, you know, she went through treatment for a couple of years and then said, screw it, I'm going to take six months off and just do whatever I want. She started smoking, she started drinking, she started exercising, <laughs> and she got pregnant. So, you know, she, you know, when she emailed me, she said, see, Allie? And I'm like, you're right, I don't know everything. <laughs> well, not only that, I mean, that is, it also doesn't mean that because she started smoking, she got pregnant right. or because she was, you know, slinging back the, um, the Mai Tais. The um, so I mean it doesn't necessarily. However, it, it it also means that that sometimes like we go back to the you know if we do everything perfect that you know it's supposed to equate uh, getting a baby, but it just if only if only it was that easy. But I think um, that, you know I think it's important to remember that you know like everything else, the stress and fertility question you know relationship is not an absolute. And so I know someone who after the earthquake went, had gone through years of infertility had basically given up went down to Haiti um, to volunteer and got pregnant. 
So, you know, and, and yeah. you know, a year ago in Haiti, you probably could not have gotten more stressed. And, you know, women who are raped get pregnant, and women who are in concentration camps get pregnant. Right. So, you know, yeah. I don't want anyone listening to think, oh, you know, the reason I can't get pregnant is because I'm stressed out. You know, stress is not a good thing for a lot of reasons. You know, it doesn't feel good to be stressed, for sure. It may decrease the efficacy of treatment. It may increase your desire to drop out of treatment, but it's not an absolute. Absolutely. It really isn't, and that takes some of the pressure off. And if you think about it, every person who is going through infertility treatment is stressed. They just It is a stressful thing to go uh-huh. through, And but plenty of them get pregnant. Yep. So. That's what you I know, tell people. Cur- I tell you, here at Boston IVF, you know, people say, you know, it's the patient who on our way home from her embryo transfer is in a massive car accident. Those are the ones that always seem to get pregnant. So, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, I don't want to go to the next logical step on no, that no, one. Therefore, drive like a bat that, out of hell when you no, leave that infertility clinic, okay? Those are the ones that stick in your mind, you know. Yeah. That, you know, the husband well, was shipped off to Afghanistan. I mean, it was just, those are the ones that stick in your mind. Well, you know. Unfortunately, that's the reality. We always yeah. remember the exceptions. It's like exactly. people saying that, oh, if you adopt, you're going to get pregnant. No, exactly. we remember that because exactly. it's, yeah. well, it's newsworthy. Yeah, yeah, it's newsworthy, right? The the uh, the one plane that crashes is what gets the coverage, exactly. not the millions of planes that take off and land every day. Exactly. So, how do you suggest people find a therapist that is knowledgeable about the issues surrounding infertility? Well, probably the easiest way is, you know, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine, ASRM, has a website. That's ASRM.org. And they mm-hmm. actually list all the mental health professionals who belong to what's called the Mental Health Professional Group of ASRM. And, you know, I can't vouch for every single one of them, but for the most part, the therapists who belong to ASRM are the ones who are by far the most familiar with infertility. And, you know, I do a training once or twice a year where I train mental health professionals how to run mind-body groups, and they have to have a half-day learning the medicine. And I, and I say to them, because if, if a patient walks in and sits down and talks about, you know, that she got cramps after her IUI, and you ask her what an IUI is, she's mm-hmm. never going to trust you again. But That's any, so true. Any therapist who, who claims to have any special interest in fertility has to know the medicine cold. Do you have a, on your site, do you list people who have gone through your training or no? Um, people can email us and we can send them a list of, of by state where people who have gone through the mind-body training are. I mean, there are probably a hundred or so in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, so if they want a mind-body group, they need to do that. <laughs> if they simply want a therapist knows about infertility, they should go to ASRM. We have a page on our site on how to find a doctor or a therapist, and uh, we link to the ASRM.org list, yeah. and we have other suggestions. And and we're certainly and, and also the service provider uh, page. We certainly list that as a service. Here is um, let me ask you a question. How do you suggest people know when to call it quits or to change plans with infertility treatment? I mean, in a way, that's what Suzette's question was. Mm-hmm. Somewhat touching on, and there's another question I'm gonna that we've received that I will read in a minute because it's a little different. But how do you know when? Okay, it's time to shift to something else, be it egg donation, be it. I, I uh, say that there, 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 there are two signals. One is your physician tells you. I mean, an ethical physician is not going to have you continue to cycle with your own eggs or your own sperm or your own uterus if he or she doesn't believe there's a decent chance you'll get pregnant from that cycle. So, and there are come times where your physician is going to say to you, you know what, I think we have to talk about next steps. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, that's rare. You know, it, most of the time it's the patient who says, you know what, I can't do this anymore. You know, the number one reason why patients drop out of treatment is not physician recommendation, it's actually stress. And that's a worldwide statistic. It's every study that's ever looked at dropout rates from IVF in insurance, insurance covered states or countries, stress is number one. So if your physician says to you, you know what, you know, you've done two IVF cycles, your embryos are just not looking great, I think let's talk donor egg, you know, then, you know, you need to either listen carefully or go home and do some soul searching. The other time is, as I said, I'm a huge believer in listening to your gut. And just as I think it was Suzette's question, you know, it sounds to me that there's a part of her that says, you know what, I want to become a mom in some way, and that's more important to me than keeping on cycling with my own eggs and my partner's sperm. Because, you know, you have to decide what's more important to you, you know, in the near future. Is it, you know, doing everything you possibly could and doing the six IVF cycle so that you can always say you did everything possible? Mm-hmm. Or is it that, you know what, I want to be a mom, I want to be a dad, and however we need to do that, I need to do that soon. And something I recommend, too, would be the third step is, even when you're still not sure, start getting informed about what Uh the next steps might be. Because often what I find is that when people start getting informed about gamete donation or about surrogacy or about adoption or or child-free life, that all of a sudden something may click with them and they start feeling a sense of, Oh, yeah, and their gut's telling them, wait uh-huh. a minute, I could do that. You know, uh-huh. yeah, hey, that's an option. Uh, and if you hear that, that's a – in other words, I guess, yes, listen to your gut, but inform yourself so that your gut can 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 speak the truth. And, in fact, when I counsel patients who are at that point, um, I mean, for example, what I always tell patients when you start any of this stuff is always have a plan B. You know, you don't have to stick to it so that you can say, you know what, we're going to do two IVF cycles, and if they don't work – you know, we're going to start looking into egg donation or we're going to start looking into adoption or whatever it is. Just have a backup plan so you never start any anything, you know, where that was the only thing you thought of. Uh, and you don't have to stick to it. You might get to that point and say, you know what, I want to look, onto, look into adoption, not egg donation. Or we sort of want to try out child-free living. I saw a patient last week who was, you know, pretty much in a frenzy over what to do. And it's pretty clear her embryos are just not normal, and so she's going to have to come up with some kind of alternative. But she has one more IVF cycle covered under um, her insurance. And I said, you know what, why not just do this cycle? I said, and as soon as you stop cycling with your own eggs, the clock stops ticking. So you can spend six months, a year, five years, she's young. I said, whatever it takes to really think about what is it that's going to work for you. There's no more time pressure. Once you stop using your own eggs, there's no time pressure. Mm-hmm. Up to a point. I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> she said she's young, yeah. so yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, she, was, she had premature ovarian failure. She was very young. Um, but but the fact is, I think that, you know, again, this sort of comes in where the perfectionistic thinking comes in, like, oh, I have to do this. You know, you don't have to do anything. These are decisions that are going to affect you for the rest of your life, and so you want to make sure you come to these decisions that mesh with your heart and soul, not just making decisions to stop the pain you're feeling right now. You know, I speak a lot on the topic of Plan B. That tends to be something I'm asked to speak on. But what I, I think... The reality is for a lot of people, particularly when they are first entering treatment, they just aren't ready to start thinking about the they possibility. Shouldn't, they shouldn't be. They shouldn't yeah. be. Yeah, you know, I don't think so either. You know, I'm not saying that first time you see a doctor, but I'm saying, you know, you, the first time you see a doctor, your plan is to have a workup. And, you know, and plan B would be do an IUI cycle. And then you start right. an IUI cycle, it's so, okay, plan B is to do IVF. 
Right. And you start doing yeah. IVF. You know what I'm saying? It, it doesn't, yeah, exactly. I'm not saying plan B is non-genetic parenthood. I'm right. saying always have a plan B. It eventually that becomes your plan B, but you don't have – that's when the, the advice of just dipping your toe in to get information right. and seeing how you react. And, and it may be your, react, your reaction is, no, that just right. isn't something I want to do, and that's fine. But right. That may not be your reaction, but you won't know. I think there's so many misconceptions about what all this means and, and what it means to be the parent of a child who isn't genetically related to you right. that it – you know. A little help doesn't hurt. Here's a question from Lori. She says, I'm definitely not happy, and I definitely am infertile, so this topic is perfect for me. I am sick of failed IVF treatment. We both have jobs that pay okay, but we aren't rich. We saved for a long time and paid for one round of IVF. It failed, and we were both devastated. It's been eight months. I'm ready to do adoption, but my husband wants to try to find the money to do another round of IVF. We are fighting like mad about this all the time. We would like we would have to mortgage the house or ask to borrow money from our families. I hate the idea of both. I just want to be a mom, and I don't care all that much about how we get our child. Adoption isn't cheap either, but it's a sure thing. How do I get him to see this? I would, you know, it's interesting because in Boston there's a social worker here whose specialty is working with couples where one wants to move on to adoption and the other isn't ready. So, you know, I would have her ask her infertility doctor if I don't know where she lives if if there's someone similar. Because I, I had a patient, a couple that I was seeing, this is, let me just think, their daughter is now 14. This is 15 years ago. And she was a cancer survivor and had done like five or six IVF cycles. And, and everyone said to her, you know what, you just can't do anymore because it's, it's going to risk your life. And so she, and this is before egg donation was really, you know, as, as popular and accepted as it is now. And so she said to her husband, you know, I really want to move on to adoption. And he's like, well, I know, let's just try on our own for five more years. And if you aren't pregnant, then then we'll adopt. And you know why she didn't slap him, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but but he ended up going through some pretty serious soul searching in terms of what was his bias against adoption. And he actually went and saw this therapist and, and realized that you know most of us who are who were four when this stuff started um, grew up with kids who adopted kids who might have had issues, and so maybe we have this bias that adopted children have issues. When in fact, you know, kids who are adopted today. Are so are coming into families that are so much more ready for them than kids who were adopted, perhaps when we were little. And he also thought about his own family history and how you know he sure wasn't bringing in uh, you know totally perfect genes into the equation. And they ended up adopting after about a year, and they happen to live in my town, so I see them all the time. And you know you will never find a more devoted dad. But I would never let anybody adopt until both members of the couple really wanted that, because if it, otherwise. You know, as soon as a couple says to me that they're thinking of adoption, I, I take off my infertility therapist hat and put on my child protection hat and say, I, I don't want you to do it until that's what you want to be doing and that's the child you want to parent. Yeah, and again, getting informed helps make that decision because there's exactly. so much misinformation, you know, out there. It, it, you know, nowadays when you were speaking about how things used to be and how they are now, one of the things that it's um, – a mixed blessing, certainly. The the all the another, all the options people have in infertility is a good thing. I mean, because it certainly resulted in many people having children who who otherwise would not have had kids. But it's so much harder now, in a mm-hmm. way, for people because they're okay. It's the problem is there is an infinite number almost right. of Plan Bs. So it's getting and our mothers. Our mothers pregnant. didn't have that. Our mothers didn't have no. choices. If you didn't get pregnant, you either adopted or went child free. 
Right. And then it became, well, if you didn't get pregnant, then you, uh, you know, you, you did an IUI and then it was, or, or you could do an IVF and then, and then you needed to get, you know, to, to, to make your peace with it or do something else. Now there's so many options that I think in some ways it's so much harder because there's the next, you know, the next step and it's not a big step. It's just a little step. Therefore, let me take it. Right. Well, it's, it's like when, you know, when you go to a buffet, you know, how do you choose? Versus, you know, if you're starving to death and someone hands you a loaf of bread, that loaf of bread looks pretty damn good. Even if, if it's starving, Wonder Bread. Even yeah. if it's Wonder Bread. But, you know, what if, you know, what if you're not starving to death or what if you walk into a buffet, maybe you're overwhelmed by the decisions. And, you know, again, you know, 30 years ago, there really weren't any options. And, and now it's up to the patient to stop treatment rather than up to the physician yes. for the most part. I, exactly. And I think that... <laughs> It makes it harder, although I, I hear all the time from reproductive endocrinologists that that they do recommend that people stop and that th- their frustration is that often the patient is not hearing them. It's just not in the place to hear them, but that they aren't, you know, mindlessly trying to tell people, oh, just keep going, just keep going. Right. Uh, you know, I, and, I, I, and I do believe that, too. I, I think that... Um, you know, as, as hard as it is to 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 do, and one of the things that I worry a lot about, and, and I do think uh, that the um, infertility uh, community as a whole, from the professional standpoint, needs to be very cognizant of this. I do worry about people who just mindlessly, as the next step in treatment, move towards uh, egg donation, sperm donation, or non-genetic parenting, mm-hmm. uh, or even surrogacy. I think that. There is a point there that you need to stop and analyze and and look deep and get help. You know, get some help from a therapist that can help you think through. You know, we had I was mentioning that searchable database of infertility clinics on our site for people to use. You know, when they're looking for a clinic, and one of the things we allow people to search for is um, services offered by the clinics. And it seems to me that more and more clinics are offering programs that acknowledge the psychological care mm-hmm. needed for infertility patients. And they have know, to. I mean, honestly, I think so these too. days, you know, if some if I ever heard of someone going on to third party reproduction without at least one visit with a therapist, I'd be horrified. Because it happens. It happens. To, Let me tell you. Be, I know it does, but you know you have to be educated. Yeah. You need to to think through what you're doing. As I said, so many people just want to stop the pain, but yeah. they don't they don't think through. They just I mean, I think you know as as much as the field of epigenetics is fantastic for people who are doing egg donation. What does it mean for people who are doing gestational surrogacy? People need to think about that. You know, it is. I couldn't agree. You preach into the choir on this one, and it it worries me so much. And, uh, I, you know, at the ASRM conference, I, mean, I, I do think that there are a lot of doctors who don't want to stop and analyze that because they they believe that, you know, they just want to get pregnant. It really doesn't matter, and I, I worry a lot when that happens. Because a lot of patients are like, I don't care what happens. I just want to achieve a pregnancy. And yeah. as I said, we have to be very careful about doing things to just stop the pain because the pregnancy is nine months, and then you have a baby. Right. And, you know, I, I have a relative who has identical twins through gestational surrogacy and when they were about two she said to me you know i'm all spooked out because they do a lot of stuff like the surrogate did and this is seven years ago and i said oh that's ridiculous but you know then i began hearing all those things about epigenetics and thinking oh you know maybe that isn't so ridiculous and maybe people do need to be educated in terms of you know what are all the risks and benefits 
of the approach they're pursuing. And it's and becoming educated doesn't mean you will decide for or against it. It just means that you will have thought through. Therefore, you are more prepared and will be better. And ultimately, our goal is to be the best parents we can for this particular child. Exactly. And I think that uh, thinking, spending a little time <laughs> ahead of time <laughs> is helpful. Thank you so much. I can't believe the hour has literally flown by. Uh, Allie, I, I'm surprised. <laughs> Thank you so much, Allie Domar, for being our guest today on Creating a Family. To get more information on Allie's practice at the Domar Center, go to Domar, D-O-M-A-R, center.com. To get more information about her practice at Boston IVF, go to bostonivf.com. She has a whole host of books available, uh, and you can uh, get them at Amazon, of course, or I believe in shopping local, so in trying to keep those bricks-and-mortar stores in business. So if you have a local bookstore, uh, go there as well. And if they don't have the book, which they probably do, if they don't, ask them to order it, and most certainly they will. If you have found this show helpful, please post about it and link to it so others can listen as well. It will be archived from the 2011, I almost said 2010, uh, big list on the radio page at creatingafamily.org. It's also available for download as a podcast from iTunes. The easiest way to find it on iTunes, uh, you can go, of course, just type in Creating a Family, or you can just push the iTunes button on our radio page and it will take you directly there. To stay in touch with the latest developments in infertility or adoption, as well as the upcoming week's blog or show topic, Sign up for our weekly newsletter at creatingafamily.org. Next week's show, which is January 26th, is the is that right? Yeah, January 26th is the first of a series of shows we're going to be doing. It's on the requested. Uh, this was a, a listener request topic of affording infertility treatment. The first show in this ongoing series is going to be on grants, loans, and IVF discount programs. So make sure you join us. Uh, and if you have any questions, you know you can uh, email them to us. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. Let's say you just bought a house. Bad news is you're one step closer to becoming your parents. You'll proudly mow the lawn. Ask if anybody noticed you mowed the lawn. Tell people to stay off the lawn. Compare it to your neighbor's lawn. And complain about having to mow the lawn again. Good news is it's easy to bundle home and auto through Progressive and save on your car insurance, which, of course, will go right into the lawn. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and other insurers. Discount not available in all states or situations. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Old moon, yeah. That's Hugo, tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's... A burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.